0: Hello, and welcome to the Lions for the Lamb podcast feed. Every Tuesday at 6.30 p.m. we'll be meeting, but if you can't make it then, then feel free to join us here. Hope you enjoy. Welcome to be first L4L of 2021. Woo! Woo. Thank you, Kyle. Thank you, Kyle. Um, We survived 2020. So first of all, it's been like a weekend. We've been on one campus. First of all, we're here on campus this semester. I know we have some, like, non-students. Um, how's it been? How we doing? Good? Good so far? Better than 2020? Maybe? A little bit? The main dish has been popping off, let me tell you. Um, I ate a spinach and feta pizza today. Uh, I'm a huge spinach and feta I don't know why I'm talking about this. Um, so fun fact, uh, I have very little sleep. I had an 8 a.m. and I went to bed at like 5.30. Um, yeah. So, it's been a real great day. Uh, Anna did the same thing, apparently, or close to it. I don't know you had a long day. Um, yeah, so, like, literally everyone here is, like, not awake, which is awesome. So, I got a couple of things. And the reason I'm doing all this is for a reason. It'll make sense here a bit. Um, yeah. So, again, y'all know me. I'm Thomas. Uh, I wrote this joint. No. Um, <laughs> sorry, I can say that because Kyle's not here. No, I can't. Uh, all right. So every Tuesday at 6:30 p.m., not looking at Brood, um, we're gonna be here. Uh, I've only moved a little bit, so like people that like do worship and stuff don't have to be here to like nine, uh, which again they're awesome. First order of business, it's great, right? Um, yeah, we are gonna do some outreach. Uh, Brittany, where yet? Over there. Um, I don't know why I said where you're at. You want to get involved in outreach and just, like, do good junk? We're not just, like, spreading that at the church. We're, like, legitimately, like, just trying to, like, give people, like, cool stuff. Because we're supposed to, like, reflect God's love, man. I'm like, that's tight. All right, I'll stop being stupid. Um, Also, if you all have any ideas for, I don't if you have any ideas for, like, social events, it would be a great idea to, like, invite people to those. So, like, please, like, let me know if you have a cool idea. Like, let's go do this cool, socially distant, like, safe thing. I don't know what I did. I really don't care. It could be anything. I legit anything. I'm not going to be the what, what? A ping pong tournament. Um, I will fail. Uh, a couple of more announcements because I forgot I had it on this page. Alyssa stepping in for Lacey. And <laughs> just a huge thank you to literally everyone that is continuing to help me get this thing going and uh, everyone that helps behind the scenes. It's uh, legitimately it's humbling. Like, y'all are great people, man. All right, so uh, let's get to actual joke. So I know I'm really goofy, um, and I, I try to be, like, approachable, but, like, this is going to be cool. Um, Why is that? <laughs> uh, I haven't spoken in a while, if y'all couldn't tell. This is going to be a very Bible-slash-history day. So strap in, get your Bible quiz and ready. Because we're going to do some reading. And it's kind of like I got you in my whole Bible study format here. And uh, I think it's kind of cool because this is where a lot of things start. It's just people, I mean, the Azusa Street, Azusa Azusa Street Revival, gosh. I mean, it just started with people getting into the Bible and figuring out, like, hey, this isn't what I was doing. Let me do the right thing. So uh, and not that, like the word—I mean, the word was God, right? I was telling myself that. Like uh, the reason I read my Bible so often is because that's probably the easiest way for me to have a close connection with God. I mean, it's right—it's like sitting on my desk, right, um, or sitting in my pocket. So that's why we're going to do a little bit of reading. And our first reading is coming from the book of Judges, literally right from the get-go, uh, right after the book of Joshua. And it starts off with Brittany's going to throw the first slide or first verse up there. You're awesome. Now, after the death of Joshua came to pass, the children of Israel asked the Lord, saying, Who shall go up for us against the Canaanites first, to fight against them? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have delivered the land into his hand. And Judah said unto Simeon his brother, Come up with me into my lot, that we may fight against the Canaanites, and I likewise will go up with thee into thy lot. So Simeon went with him, and Judah went up, and the Lord delivered the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand. And they slew of them in Bezek, ten thousand men. And then they found Adoni Bezek, who was a king in this weird Canaanite group in Bezek, and they found against him. And they slew the Canaanites and the Perizzites. But Adoni Bezek fled, and they pursued after him. And they caught him. They caught him and cut off his thumbs and big toes. So anyone that says the Bible is lame, you're lame, bro. The Book of Judges is awesome. There's a spot in here where some guy gets like a nail driven through his temple, like. Insane, bro. PG-13. There would not be a VeggieTales movie on the book of Jones. I'll just put it in that. Um, We'll get serious here in a second, I promise. So the main thing here is that Joshua is dead. And that's a big deal because he's the last real leader of Israel before they have the monarchy. You have like the King of David and so on and so forth, and then the kingdom splits. And I've talked about this a million times. I love Israeli history, Although some consider him the first Israelite judge, his life and subsequent death is an important mark in Israeli history because after it comes the judges and then the kings. The important note is that, regardless of what you consider, is that the distress of losing their leader is clearly a marking point in their history. And Judah and Simeon are sent to answer the challenge, or I should say, they answer the challenge of the Lord in these trying times, and that is to wipe the Canaanites out who are surrounding the southern peninsula of Israel. Um, I meant to put a map together, but uh, I figured that the two hours of sleep kind of gave me an excuse. So they attack, and they conquer, for the most part, this group of Canaanites from Israel. In fact, the Canaanite king, Midget here, Bezek, has his big foe, big foes, big toes, and thumbs cut off. He later dies in Jerusalem, the next verse, one well, captivity. It's pretty rough stuff. I think what's really cool here is that Judah and Simeon quite literally stop the enemy's hold, and throw them off balance. Without a thumb, you cannot grasp a weapon, you cannot grasp a tool, you cannot write on a piece of paper. It's physically impossible for you to do anything. Having opposable thumbs is a very useful adaptation or evolution, whatever you want to call it, that we've developed. So they cut those off. And the other thing they cut off is this big toe, which, according to the Google, is mostly responsible for your balance and also your walking, because as you walk, you push off with that big toe. So Israel has quite literally knocked the enemy off balance and stopped their advances and stopped them from attacking Israel. I think it's very clear that the Bible is specific about what they do on purpose. The advances of Israel then continued westward on the Mediterranean Sea. We see in verses 16, And the children of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, went up out of the city of palm trees with the children of Judah into the wilderness of Judah, which lieth in the south of Arad. And they went and dwelt among the people, and Judah went with Simeon his brother, and they slew the Canaanites that inhabited Zephath, and utterly destroyed it. And the name of the city was Hormon. Also Judah took Gaza with the coast thereof, and Ascalon with the coast thereof, and Ekron with the coast thereof. And the Lord was with Judah, and he drave out the inhabitants of the mountain, but he could not drive out the inhabitants of the valley, because they had chariots of honor. So what's happening right here? So they go, they have to beat some people, which is pretty cool. They're like, all right, we're gonna get rid of them for real. So if you don't know this, the peninsula, not peninsula, the way that the Israel Israelite country formed is that Judah is at the Judaism south. Um and separating the Mediterranean Sea from Judah is a group on the coast of Canaanites. This is the group that this portion of scripture is talking about. Specifically the cities of Escalon and Ekron and uh, also close to Gaza might be getting some of that wrong, which in my defense, I wasn't there. Oh, I don't know what's good defense. Judah and Simeon would go on to conquer most of this territory, and it would be the largest territory hold that Israel has up to that point. But then something stops them something in the valley in between that sea and the mountain where the main city of Jerusalem is, or where Judah is. So much so that the valley mentioned here is most likely referring to the same low lying area surrounding Judah. A.K.A. the territory they just conquered, they are now unable to conquer. Now, I don't know if you're a big guy into apologetics, which I am. Um, And I did a lot of research into this. A lot of people think it's kind of weird that the Bible is basically contradicting itself. On one hand, you have the Bible saying, hey, they just wiped all these people out. Awesome. And then it goes and says, they can't wipe out the Canaanites. So it's like, what's going on, bro? Um, the most likely answer is that, for a time, Israel was able to wipe out these Canaanite tribes. However, it was not a lasting victory, and the chariots of iron in this valley were able to drive them out. This loss in the valley very clearly stops Israel's advance and sets them up for even greater future failure. So let's talk about that valley, if you want to throw my title slide up there. Um, the rest of Judges chapter 1 tells you about how Israel has been fighting off various Canaanite factions, but they can't seem to finish the job. It came to pass when, uh, this is verse 28, chapter 1. It came to pass when Israel was strong that they put the Canaanites to tribute and did not utterly drive them out. So again, right there. You see, the Israelites failed to completely drive out the following groups in Judges chapter And in Judges chapter 3, we see that those groups would then become part of the Philistines would plague Israel both externally and internally for generations after. All because they couldn't have victory in the battle. So the people of Israel lived among, this is verse, I should probably, I'm sorry, Brittany. <laughs> Judges 3, 5-6. through six. So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. And they intermarried with them, and the Israelite sons married their daughters. The Israelite daughters were given in marriage to the above sons, and the Israelites served their gods. So this is a really classic portion of scripture. I'm sure literally almost everyone in here might have heard this story before. And it's very often attributed with not letting the enemy come within you, or like being content with like partially living for God. All of those things are awesome. But I want to talk about something a little more deeper than that. Israel got into this mess because they failed to find victory in the battle. Their attack on the surrounding nations wasn't just ended, but it was wholly reversed. What does that mean for us? I mean, I don't think it's any, you know, joke-like. We're in a pretty metaphysical, metaphorical battle here. Um, and my motives are obviously related to that in speaking about this whole event. It's pretty obvious that this season has introduced plenty of trials, tribulations, whatever you want to say. Everyone in here, including myself. I mean, look around here. We're, you know, we're not growing a whole lot right now. and that's, that's okay. You know, that's God's pace, not ours. There are plenty of people that we all know that should be in this room, or people that we interact with on a daily basis that you think, I'm doing everything I can to reach these people, but every week they have an excuse. Every time I talk to them, they have an excuse. Anybody anybody know anyone? Anyone been in that situation before? Raise your hands. Yeah, right? Yeah. The only way our future is going to be stable is that we conquer this valley. In your own life, We conquer this valley once and for all, because it's not just the coronavirus. It's not just hate. Those are all masks for other things plaguing this generation of believers. How many people in here have a thing, and you don't have to like obviously say it, but like that it just always it's like that one thing you just can't seem to get over. Anything spiritual, right? 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 Yeah. Everyone deals with this, and that valley is a repeating thing. God challenges Israel in their dark time when they lose one of their greatest leaders to go and conquer the valley, and he empowers them very explicitly to do so. It is no joke. It is not like a, you know, a theory that, oh, maybe they had the power of God. Through. No, 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 no. Like, literally, like, it's in the same verse where they failed. God was with Judah. God is with you. Who could be against you? Well, apparently, if you cherry to iron, you can't. Um, sorry. <laughs> So the question today, and we'll get a little bit into this is as I'm talking, I want you to think about this. What is God challenging you to overcome in this season? What is he challenging you to reject in the valley? To conquer in your valley? Or to start something in your valley? Today we're going to talk about gaining victory in that Manhattan. And there's a couple steps to this process I want to talk about. And again, we're in this little like, small group setting because, uh, but that makes sense. Bear with me. So the first step, and I know I said I wasn't going to talk about this, is not associating with the enemy. Yeah, I know I'm back on my word. I said I'm going to talk about this, but again, it's such a classic portion of scripture. Like everyone talks about it, it's so good. So I've talked about this literally plenty of times. I did a whole thing on like identity. Really the first time I talked about no, for real, so like about facing darkness, etc., etc. I love this jump. Israel's most notable flaw is that they mingled and interact with the enemy. And it is impossible to complete God's plan when you fill your life and your heart with the world or the things in it. Notice that I said fill, because we're never going to be 100% spirit. Otherwise, we're like a little like ghost-looking figure over here that'll ascend to heaven. I don't think anyone here is that close. If you are, let me know, because like, I'm getting like, a video camera. Uh, that'd be pretty dope. It'd be great on social media. Uh... <laughs> We will never be 100% spirit and 0% flesh until the rapture comes or this life ends. However, that shouldn't stop you from striving for that eternal goal. Um, My teachers here. (laughs) Judges tell us that the next generation of Israelites intermarried with the Canaanite people, which led Israel to serve other gods, and they ended up even building altars to these deities. Again, we read it just earlier. What I think is interesting is that back then there was no Christianity. Um, Yeah, in fact, Christian wasn't actually a term until the church of Antioch started with Paul. In Christianity, your fruit or your commitment to God was extending, or back then your fruit or your commitment to God was shown through extending your lineage to grow God's chosen people of Israel. That's how you grew believers. Only the Israelites were God's people. I mean, nowadays, we know that through the ministry, people like Paul and the Gentiles, and all of us here, can be saved too. And that's awesome. But now, back in the day, that wasn't the case. So, what's interesting is that this proves that, you know, Israel is not, you know, their metrics or like what we're measuring them by is clearly not up to par. Their children and what they're believing, this new generation of Israelites, is led to believe that the Canaanite religion, the Canaanite lifestyle, is that and by associating with the enemy, Israel has produced bad fruit. Their offspring no longer serve God, and they raise an entire generation contrary to God's will. How many times the apostles, or I mean, in the Gospels or the Epistles, do we see that our fruit is what measures our relationship with God? And in this case, the measurement for Israel is pretty poor. And I'm not asking you to go out and kill every single person that doesn't agree with you, because, well, you'd be arrested for one thing, and also not a very biblical thing to do you see, we're under a new covenant, and the power of God is available to each and every one of you in here. And just a side note here, and I know all of you probably know this, if you think God isn't for you, let me tell you that God decided to die just so you can make the choice that God is for you. And I will never get up here and talk without mentioning that I think it's so important. You see, it time and time again in Scripture that we just read, even while Israel was failing God, he was with them. And the covenant we're under now is even greater than that of Israel. I think sometimes we let the enemy have a foothold in our life because we don't believe how important it is for ourselves to be spiritually best. We just believe that we're cogs in a machine of spirituality. But if you look around you in this room, that's not a lot of cogs. So you better be one really, really good gear or cog or whatever my brother's in here is going to be funny because that's the wrong term. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the question is how involved do you want to be in the last day revival you see you can sit and you can sleep all you want but to truly win in the valley the first thing you have to do is remember how important you are and drive the enemy out God didn't put you here to sit idly by so he's asking you to wake up and I'm going to come back to this point and I know I keep saying that You're not here to just be another piece. That's what the enemy wants you to believe. And if he's making you believe that, he's already won. Because that means the enemy has filled you up with this idea that you aren't important, that you can't cause serious change, that the power of God isn't within you. That is completely false. And that's the first step to victory. The second step, and probably my favorite little thing I've researched in a while, is in verse 19. So, let's go ahead and read it again. If you could throw it up there again for a break, verse 19. And the Lord was with Judah, and he drave out the inhabitants of the mountain, but could not drive out the... Yeah, there go. But he could not drive out the inhabitants of the valley because they had chariots of iron. You see, me being the nerd I am, I kind of figured that this phrase at the end has to be significant. Why does he mention chariots of iron? Uh, the mention of iron goes all the way back to the Hebrew word for barzel. Um, which I have written down here. I don't know why it's not that important. But yeah, it's all the way back there. So even the people that are physically transcribing the Bible all the way back then made a point to mention the word iron. Uh, My pastor, the Donovan Hill shout-out, would probably mention that uh, iron's symbolic for something like the book of Daniel. We see all these statues of iron. He gets really into that. Um, However, to be honest with you, it was pretty late when I was writing this, and uh, I was looking for something else. And this thought had kind of occurred to me a couple of days ago, and I just thought it was so cool. Because something specific has to be noteworthy, especially here. So iron is a relatively hard material, obviously, and its abundance made it a great material to make tools and weapons out of when a civilization was advanced enough to do so. However, before any Iron Age starts, most civilizations go through what's called Bronze Age. And following information is uh, adapted from a little page on James Moyer, PhD of the chairman of the Department of Religious Studies at Southwest Missouri State University. Yes, I went there. You see, Israel didn't develop chariots until they developed a monarchy way later on in their history. And the iron in that region was under Canaanite control, which left Israel at a severe disadvantage. However, we know later on in the Book of Judges from things like Deborah's victory, and also the victory of Gideon, that Israel was not without power. In fact, Gideon and Deborah led two of the biggest revolts against many of the Canaanites that were attacking them. And we even know that God was with Judah, because once again in the first, po- first part of verse 19 he says God was with Judah. Who am I to disagree with the direct translation? After countless easy winds around Israel, Israel forgot that God was the source of those winds. Specifically, the winds that took place in the hills with the chariots aren't on the mountainous rocky terrain when times are easy it's, it's easy for you to think oh man the enemies just struggle they are just bad you know, they, they can't handle me You know, I'm this cool big bad Christian dude it's easy for us to forget that God is the source of all of our strength and again I know I'm kind of preaching to the choir but we lean on our own understanding and strength much too often and I know this is something that I personally struggle with all the time being like kind of a troll freak but the truth is that we are boring, soft, and weak, just like the bronze weaponry wielded by Israel. And we're no match for a full force attack from the devil when he's at his strongest in the low, flat valley, just like Israel. In order to win in the battle, we have to defeat the enemy when they are at their strongest. And that detests, necessitates that we depend entirely on God. Remember, iron is a tool material. And iron is symbolic of the working man, the day-to-day operations, the in-between, you know, the Sunday-to-Sunday Sunday Christian. If you aren't that, and you don't do this 100% of the time, you will go through a valley and be defeated. This isn't something you can just win once. It's a mindset of winning day in and day out, every single time. Countless times the apostles struggled with something and God didn't deliver them for it or through it. Because that's what made you a better person. Paul talks about it all the time in the letters he writes. Uh, yeah. We're constantly under attack. And this is perhaps most evident between our services or between prayer time or on a weird Tuesday where again you could be doing something better. And I recently went on a really long roommate, a uh, recently long rant to my roommate the other day about Paul. Because I think he has a great demonstration for a strategy of winning, not too dissimilar from the second. Because the third point is that in every victory, in every battle, we need a why. This makes me excited. <laughs> I need y'all to like be a little awake with me here. Thank you. Maybe I shouldn't said that. Amen. All of the best athletes, all of the best writers, all of the best poets, whatever, and all of the best apostles have a why a reason or a motivation to do everything that they did. And although we can accomplish nearly anything with Jesus, that motivation really does help the little part of flesh we are. And the last part to victory is that we need a reason to be victorious. I think God's love and mercy is already an intrinsic motivation in and of itself, because none of us are worthy to be in the position we are or to even exist. We've all messed up and we all will continue to mess up. And that's just a sad fact of life. To quote Captain John Luke Picard, yeah. It's possible to commit no mistakes and still lose. That's not weakness, that's life. Look at my brother because Star Trek um, I just wanted to excuse to quote Star Trek, not gonna lie. but uh, the truth is it's so accurate. We can do everything right as a Christian and mess up. We can live the best life from Sunday to Sunday, like I just said. And then something will come, the enemy will attack you like crazy, and you Mm -hmm. just fail. And you say something wrong to the wrong person, or you blow up at somebody, or you make the wrong decision, hang out with the wrong people. God forbid you take the wrong substance. I don't know what y'all are doing. But to be honest with you, I don't really care. Sorry. (laughs) Everyone has a that pressure overwhelmed him. Even Paul thought he was unworthy. And in the book of Ephesians, uh, another shout that to Adam Hill here, always says the, Paul when he writes to the church of Ephesus, which I think is such a cool way to say the book of Ephesians. Uh, but anyway, in Ephesians. Uh, whereof, uh, whereof I was made a minister, according to the gift and the grace of God, given unto me by the effectual working of his power, Unto me, who am I, less than the least of all saints, is this grace given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Ephesians 3, 7-8. Paul never thought he was worthy to do what he did. He massacred Christians for the first part of his life. I mean, obviously he's not the best dude at that point. In fact, Paul, when asked if he was an apostle, said no. Although by all standards, he is mostly considered an apostle. I mean, I consider it impossible, you know? And the fact that I can even stand here and say anything like this is just proof that I should be struck down for my past sin or sent to hell for enough reasons that I've done in this life, but I'm not. And that's reason enough for me to live and give my service all to God. (laughs) However, that doesn't work for everyone. Uh, I'll be real, it doesn't. Because the truth is, we're selfish people. And even though we are unworthy, so, so unworthy. Yeah, we cannot forget that what we do and how we live is important, but we got to have more motivation. And even Paul had more motivation. So let me tell you about Paul's why. And this is the part where I get really, really excited, because I think what Paul is, it's such a cool person. See, Paul is from the tribe of Benjamin. Benjamin is obviously a Jewish tribe. And in the book of Acts, we actually are given the reason as to why the first church is mostly Gentile, and not Jew. That's because the Jews, for the most part, rejected the fact that Christ was the Savior. Paul was the key to this change because Paul went after the Gentiles. Uh, we see in Acts 23 that uh, he, although he was a devout Pharisee, and family is quoted as being devout Pharisees or you know, Jewish people, we see in Acts 23, leading up to the trial he has in Rome, he even politically aligns himself with Rome. It's Roman citizenship. So Paul is a Roman, he's a Jew, and he's not going after either of those people. He's such a cool guy. But at the end of the day, although Paul was called to the Gentiles, the book of Acts explains, I that already. Although he was called to the Gentiles, he spends most of his ministry trying to reach Jerusalem. Me out here. I know, what I'm saying is, you know, you would be kind of like, "Whoa, real, what are we talking about?" I mean, like, Paul's a Gentile guy; like he's the guy that's like everybody's equal, you know. But like, and that's true and all. But Paul took so many trips to and from Jerusalem, second only to Antioch, beginning where that first church was planted. That's for obvious reasons. Jerusalem is the center of Christianity itself. Jesus obviously frequented there multiple times. There's a huge Christian belief. There's a huge Christian uh, group there that believed in Jesus. It was just in a country that was mostly not believing in Christianity. It's the birthplace of modern Christianity and Paul's only goal is to go back home and save his family and the people he's related to. Paul's capture is even a direct result of him finishing the mission he started. and We started this in Acts 20. I'm not going to read all of Acts 20. But basically, Paul was warned by believer after believer after believer on his third missionary trip to not go back to Jerusalem. But at this point, Paul was kind of like the dude, you know? It's basically like if you have like two political parties and like Joe Biden walks into like an Alabama bar, like, you feel me? Like He's not going to get the most welcome reception. It's even worse than that. Um, you see, even Luke, Paul's protege, tells him to not go to Jerusalem. The guy he's been traveling with is basically just like, yes, man, is like, dude, don't do that, like you're gonna die. And he was right. Like, that's the crazy part. Like, we see in Acts 21, 13, then Paul answered and said, What mean ye to weep and to break my heart? For I am ready not to be bound only, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Acts 21.13. Paul is willing to die just to give a chance to save everyone he has at Jerusalem, because those are his people. To Paul, this was personal. He had done all he could to save the Gentiles for the most part, more than many of us will ever do in our entire life, but he had a personal goal, and it inspired and it motivated him every step of the way. His every journey, he so took, he went back to Jerusalem and he made a point to talk to those believers. And Paul's eventual capture, he's showing prospective believers the temple of Jesus. I mean, the temple not of Jesus. He's showing them the temple in Jerusalem. And people see him and are like, bro, you're trying to like steal our people. And he gets arrested for it. Even when Paul is brought out of the Jerusalem and he's being shipped back to Rome, he gets shipwrecked on an island. And instead of running away like some of the other people who suggest he do that, he goes and saves the people on that island. And he gets back in Roman captivity because he's not letting his story go away. In all the epistles he writes, he mentions that he's almost glad. Um, I don't even know where tone into like Bible if you're English but his tone is positive. He's glad to be arrested because to him, this is the most publicity he could possibly give. And my challenge is that you make it personal. Our end goal as believers is always to save souls. And to do that, we have to motivate ourselves every step of the way through the battle. When the enemy has every advantage, and the challenges the world brings are just too daunting to bear, we need to think back to why we do what we do. Is it to save your family like Paul did or tried? Is it to start a church or to start a CMI on your campus to our non-South southeastern people? Is it just to talk to that one friend that you're pretty tight with in calculus class? Or is it just to be a better person? To reflect God in everything you do? Is it a combination of any of those things? Because what's motivating you through the valley will, hope, will hopefully, most likely, get you through the valley and get you victory through it. And it can't just be that you want to spread God's love. That's totally cool, too. If you can't find a why you do what you do, then you might as well leave because you're going to lose in the battle. And the battle you fight every single day is going to be lost because you can't motivate yourself, you can't beat the battle day to day, and you can't see your victory. So finally, I want to talk about before any of this, the vision in the battle. And just like Gideon did, we need to see the victory before we ever get to any of our any of our valley. That was a weird way to write that. It's no secret we're in a valley. Like I mentioned it earlier, and to be honest with you, I have no idea how long this period will last, and that scares me, terrifies me. But I'm not going to sit back and watch the church lose. So what can we do? First, we got to have a vision. Let me tell you my vision. Every CMI, I talk about this a lot if you guys watched the week. I think the end goal for every CMI is to plant a church in the city of Maryland. And to be honest with you, I don't know if I'll be here or you'll be here or whoever will be here or when that'll be. But the end goal of the CMI is to plant a church in the greater area. Ideally, in Hammond itself. That was the original goal of the church we right now. And I'm kind of sad Kyle's not here because I know that gets him fired up. You see, we have an opportunity to be that church now. And act like the first church did, not like Israel. We need to wake up and remember that everything we do is spiritual. Your measure is not. Your measure is spiritual. Your classes are spiritual. Your conversations are spiritual. You are to not sit here by and watch the revival happen. You are to sit here and help make revival happen. It's time for us to spiritually wake up. And Alyssa, if you can come and just, you know, play a little bit. You need to stop acting like you don't have a part to play in God's grand plan. Once again, quoting Paul here, every little part you play is super important. I can't describe you how important it is, and to be honest with you, I wouldn't be able to fathom it. If you live for him, not only will you get the most fulfillment out of this existence, but you'll be responsible for a movement that cannot be stopped by the coronavirus cannot be stopped by hatred, it cannot be stopped by political affiliation, not by anything that can come against you. And if you're any part of that movement that starts a church or starts a group of believers that wants more out of the simple, physical existence, help each other out. You see, my goal here today, and the reason I was excited that it's not a lot of money, is I want to empower every single one of you to turn what you do here into a launching point for not just this campus, but every campus in this state, in this nation, your group, your city, your classes, to be a fundamental part in a global change. And I know that sounds wild and crazy because what do I know? I just started. We might not be able to get anyone in here physically or hold massive services like we used to, But we can make a change. And me preaching from this spot will do very little to be honest with you. But if I reflect and you reflect God every single thing we do, it helps a lot. But the first step, now that you've seen that vision, is to get victory. You're not meant to just stay in your little loop of I get excited and then I go home and I fail. I go home and I make the same wrong decision. I don't want to live like that. I don't think anyone in here wants to live like that. In this room, our prayer warriors, our preachers, our teachers, our church planners. I don't care how dumb, how weak, how, like, it doesn't matter. To God, it doesn't matter. I'm probably the least. I'm not like a PK, you know? I'm not like some crazy, you know, my parents aren't like on fire for church. I mean, my mom's cool. But like, (laughs) I'm not. And you don't have to be either. I think this season is here to prepare a generation of believers who stop, and that's the very important quote here, stop looking for organizational solutions to spiritual problems. I want that phrase to be your motto. This CMI will not save our campus, but you will. Change the wording up a little bit. Stop asking what we can do as a group, and start asking yourself what I can do. Stop saying God is going to do X. He's going to move my campus, He's going to move in my CMI, and start saying He is. Otherwise, you're looking for a future. And it's never really going to happen. This is a very important message for me. Because to be honest with y'all, I don't know what my plan is in life. I don't know where I'm going. But I'm here. And you're here. You're on that campus every single day for the most part. You see people every single day. If you're not on campus, you go to a job you don't go to a job, you play video games with people. I don't know. You do something, you interact with people. We have to get out there. And although Paul didn't treat himself like an apostle, or I guess he didn't consider himself an apostle, he sure did treat himself like one. He knew the importance of what he did day in and day out. Going back to my pastor here for a second, he has a little thing, he's, uh, he wrote a book called I Am Who I Am Says I Am. His little thing is, uh, people that, you know, know what I'm talking about. He always says, like, make an I am statement, you know? I think it's a little cool little exercise. And I want you to tell yourself that I am an apostle. You are an apostle to this campus and to this world. And it's not just a thing I'm saying because I'm up here with a mic. Trust me, this is terrifying. But if we can treat ourselves like apostles and get over ourselves and get over our issues, I can't tell you how far you will go. And I'm not saying we, I'm saying you. Make it an individual thing. Make it an individual, personal, problem. Thank you for tuning in to the Alliance for the Lamb podcast feed. Feel free to check in with us every week where you'll be seeing new updates. Have a good day.